Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Huzaifa, as always. And I just wanted to let you guys know, too, just in case, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show as we have tons of new content coming out this summer, a new episode every day, in fact. So a lot of good stuff. I really encourage you to do that if it has not happened already. Now, today we are talking about test prep. And we're talking in particular about math test prep, tests like the SAT, ACT. This even applies to the GMAT, GRE. And what we're talking about today is how to approach and tackle the really, really tough math problems that you will encounter on these exams. Now, this is a, a, a bit of an, of an experiment. I think it's going to work great, but we're going to try it out. If you guys have trouble with this episode because we're going to talk about actual math questions and I'm going to walk you through the process of how to think about them, how to solve them, so you know how to deal with them in the future. Now granted, I don't have a whiteboard like I normally do in when I'm on my YouTube videos, things like that, and my Skype sessions. I'm just talking about it. So we're going to try this out. If people out there listen to this and aren't crazy about this format, you know, I'll think about tweaking it or adding video supplements, but I think it's going to work. And the way I want it to work is I'm going to post these questions. There's three questions that we're going to go over today, and they're pretty tough. But there's also there's a way to approach them that if you approach them the right way, they're super doable. But what I want you to do is if you want to do these problems with me, I'd like you to pause this right now and go to the show notes, grab the problems, write them down, and then step through them with me as I talk about them and as I discuss them. And you can even pause it intermittently to try and solve it on your own and then go ahead and follow along with the audio explanation. But that's what we're going to do today. This is all based on an article I wrote uh, that's called... SAT prep, tackling tough math questions. So I'm going to step through the text and then go through the three problems that I have listed here because they're great problems. They're really fun if you can figure them out and we will no doubt figure them out together. All right, so I'm going to start reading from the text. Again, if you guys have questions or something isn't clear, you can always email me at huzefa at scalarlearning.com. And those show notes where you can find these questions are going to be found at www.scalarlearning.com. Just go to the podcast section and this episode episode 31 you can check it out there all right here we go nailing an 800 on the math portion of the sat can be a tricky feat and by the way this applies to more than just the sat act all that stuff gmat gre even if you are steadfastly familiar with all of the requisite formulas and rules A difficult problem can overwhelm even the most prepared individual come test day. Time constraints, test surroundings, and the overall weight of the exam can unnerve the most grounded students. 
So what do you do when panic strikes and your mind draws a blank? How do you recenter yourself and charge forward with ferocity and confidence? What you do is this. Write everything down from the problem. This is the most important part of the problem-solving process. As you peruse the question, write down the pertinent data and establish relationships by setting up equations. This exercise will help you see solutions that were previously difficult to decipher. As you work on practice tests and sample problems, you must work diligently to form a solid habit of writing down important bits of information as you plow through the SAT math section. To give you an example of what it means to write everything down from the problem, I will explore the following three math questions in great detail. These in-depth explanations will give you an idea of what should be going through your brain every time you see a math problem. With practice, these thoughts and processes will manifest faster and faster until solving problems in this fashion becomes a reflexive response. So that is so important, what I just said. A lot of times when I'm working with a student or they're watching me perform and go through an example, I know that they'll, they will initially think that I just know everything right when I see it. Like I look at a problem and I know it and I understand it and, I, and the answer pops into my head. That does happen. No, I'm not going to say that doesn't happen because I practice all the time. This is what I do. This is what I teach. So yes, that does happen, but it doesn't happen all the time. There are problems that I that I look at and I, and I don't know the answer and I don't even know necessarily how to solve it when I, at first glance. Um, but then what I do is the way I figure it out regardless, right? Like I just took the SAT in May, the new, ver- the new SAT and I got a perfect on the math. I didn't know how to solve every math problem right when I looked at it. There were some that I, I actually wasn't too sure about initially. So what do I do is I read it carefully and I write everything down. Then I just start making logical moves, logical steps. Oh, these things kind of look like they go together. Oh, this looks like something that should be factored. I don't know why, but it just does. And then the picture becomes clear. Then you start to see the path. And it's really cool. It's like it, the, the overarching message is don't, don't let that intimidate you in fact you should be okay with not knowing how to solve the problem just have trust in that process have trust in the in the general path of saying i'm going to just take all the information put it down and something's going to come to my head and that confidence will come with practice and that's why it's important you develop this routine you get this practice going where you if once you see yourself do this a bunch of times where you don't know the answer, but you figure it out and you get it correct, you're going to start to get a really nice level of confidence. Super important. All right, now we're going to jump into these practice problems. And I think you're going to see they're pretty fun if you once you get the hang of it, once you can start to figure these out. So let's, let's get into it. And this is kind of, this is one that's really branches to the icy as well. The average of four different integers is 75. If the largest integer is 90, what is the least possible value of the smallest integer? So let me read that one more time. The average of four different integers is 75. If the largest integer is 90, what is the least possible value of the smallest integer? They give some answer choices, but we don't care about that. You can read the answer choices online. 
Um, but we're going to just solve this in a pure way, not trying to guess and check, not trying to eliminate answers. We're just going to solve it. So I'm going to read now from the article again. Right off the bat, the problem states that we have four different integers. We can begin the problem by creating variables to represent those four integers. Now I chose W, X, Y, Z. You can choose A, B, C, D, whatever you like. We also know that the average of the integers is 75. Aha. So even if you're not totally sure how to solve this problem, we have an average. Well, let's set up our nice average equation. How do you take the average of something? Well, you add up all the elements. So from in my case, W plus X plus Y plus Z. And then you divide by the number of items. So you divide by 4. And that's going to equal 75. So there is our baseline equation. It's pretty good. Now, all you have to do is do a little variable isolation. Even though we got four variables, it's kind of crazy. But let's isolate all those variables. So we multiply across that 4. We multiply that 4 to that 75. And now we're going to get W plus X plus Y plus Z equals 300. Now, this is really cool. Now we know that the sum of all those integers equals 300. We also know that the largest integer is 90, right? It tells us that the largest integer is 90. So I'm going to go ahead and replace the Z with 90. Now the question is, what is the least possible value of the smallest integer? So there could be many possible values, right? But we're looking for how small can we get this integer? It's a little tricky to interpret, but we can reason this out fairly quickly. To get the smallest possible number, what needs to be true about the other two integers? They need to be as large as possible. It also tells us 90 is the highest value for the integers, right? It says the largest value is 90. So we can just simply assign the other two variables to 90 as well, right? That makes sense. Or does it? So this is where the this is where this is why I classify this as a very hard problem. When I read the problem, you may have missed this part, but the problem clearly states. This is the average, so it, it just sneaks this under the radar. The average of four different integers, so they're not the same, so we can't have three 90s. So it says, it, so it says again, there are four different integers. This restricts us from using 90 for the other two values. Instead, maybe one could be 89, and then the other one has to be a different value again, so 88. Now we have our three values for the integers, 90 plus 89 plus 88, plus our last missing value, call it W. So we add those up, 90 plus 89 plus 88, and we get 267. Okay, so we get 267 plus W equals 300. Now we just isolate, or you can think, well, what plus 267 gives you 300? And that is simply... 33. So guess what? The least possible integer value for this question is 33. I bet you the way that most people make a mistake is they guess that it's got to be 30, right? So if you have 90 plus 90 plus 90, oh, what are you missing? 30. And that it's a, it's a shame because this really just tests that, you know, did you pick up that little nuance? And it's such a little nuance. So that is how we solve that problem. Let's move on to question number two. 
Number two, solution X is 10% alcohol by volume. And solution Y is 30% alcohol by volume. How many milliliters of solution Y must be added to 200 milliliters of solution X to create a solution that is 25% alcohol by volume? It's a hard problem. This is a really hard problem. This is a systems of equations problem. And you got to read the, if you're if you're wondering what I just said right now, it's because you should be because it's it's a, a lot of information. You should absolutely go to the show notes right now. Read this problem. www.scalarlearning.com. Go to the podcast section. Check it out. Pause. Look at it and then come back. So let's start writing down the relevant information. So first we can we're going to come up with two formulas. OK, we got we know that solution X is 10 percent alcohol. All right. So we're going to say that 0.1 times X gives us the alcohol in X. All right. In the blog article, I write a X and 0.3 times Y solution. Y gives you the alcohol content of Y. You can say a Y or a sub Y, however you want. So the above equations denote the amount of alcohol given a certain number of milliliters of solution, where AX equals alcohol for X and AY equals alcohol for Y. And X equals milliliters, so it's very important to know this, X equals milliliters of solution of X, and Y equals milliliters of solution Y. The next part of the equation asks how many milliliters of Y must be added to 200 milliliters of X to create a solution that is 25% alcohol. So to do this, we can represent the facts as an equation. So we've got 0.3Y, okay, plus 0.1X equals, so again, we're saying, because we know that the amount of alcohol is 0.3 from Y, 0.1 plus X, equals 025 times x plus y. But x plus y, that's just the total milliliters of solution. But we bottomize, we need a 25%. Um, we need 25% alcohol. So once again, we have a two-variable equation, which means we can't solve it, right? We've got that equation, but we got a y, we got an x in there. We can't solve it. But we have a value for x, okay? We know that x, the quantity of x is 200. So we can plug in 200, 200 milliliters for x, and the variable reduces down to a single variable equation with just y. Now we have 3y plus 20, okay? So you're going to have to look, and you can also look at the, the blog article uh, as you're following along, and you can see the equations written down. We've got 3y plus 20 equals 0.25y. We distributed that 0.25y plus 50 because that's 25.25 times 200. That gives you 50. So now we just solve for y. So you're going to end up isolating y, getting it on both sides. You're going to get the numbers on both sides. You're going to end up getting 0.3y minus 0.25y equals 50 minus 20. That gives you 0.05y equals 30. And if you divide both sides by 0.05, you're going to get y equals 600 which is an answer of E in this case, of 600. All right, onwards and upwards to number three. 
So here's the final question in this in this uh, podcast article. Here we go. On a certain multiple choice test, nine points are awarded for each correct answer, and seven points are deducted for each incorrect or unanswered question. So you lose seven points no matter what, if you get it wrong or if you skip it. Sally received a total score of zero points on the test. If the test has fewer than 30 questions, how many questions are on the test? Okay. This is a tricky one. She gets nine points for everything she got right. She gets negative seven points for everyone she gets wrong. How do we approach something like this? What does that mean? And it's got fewer than 30 questions. Okay. We just got to start thinking about it like this. Now, you can set it up in an equation, which I did in, which I'll explain in a second. But let's just think about this logically. So how, so what does that mean? How many questions must this have? Well, let's just think about this. Let's pretend there are two questions. And we get one right and one wrong. So we get nine points, but then we lose seven points. Is it possible with two questions to get us down to zero points? No, because there's always going to be a two-point difference, no matter how we stack it. Well, if we get them both right, we get 18. That's obviously no good. Get them both wrong, we got negative 14. So that's no good. So how can we get exactly zero points with two questions? You can't. The smallest you'll get is two. Okay. I mean, the closest to zero you'll get is two. Smallest is negative 14. So let's think about some more questions. Well, if we add it to three questions now, let's say we get one right and two wrong. Mm, That doesn't work either. We got plus nine and then minus 14. Now we're at negative five. It's no good. So how do we do this? Well, we need to figure out a number at which the number of questions right, you know, whatever we're multiplying by nine, is going to equal, it's going to be the negative equivalent of that in questions wrong. And again, that questions wrong, we're losing seven points. So we basically are looking for a common multiple of nine and seven. Somewhere where we get a certain number of questions right, and we can get another number of questions wrong that's going to have the same total point value on the negative side as for the point value we're getting for the positive side of this. So let's think so common multiple. Well, the first common multiple I think I know of seven and nine is 63. That's just seven times nine. They have no other smaller common multiple. So if that's the case, we need to think then how many questions do you have to answer right to get a positive score of 63? Well, it's seven. Right? Because if we ask for one question right, we get 9. Two questions right, we get 18. 3, 27. 4, 36. 5, 45. 6, 54. And 7, 63 points. So now we're at 63. Cool. Well, how many questions do we have to get wrong to lose 63 points? Again, we lose 7 for 1, lose 14 for 2, so on and so forth. We got to get 9 questions wrong to lose 63. 9 times 7, or negative 7, gives you that negative 63. Well, how many questions is that total? Well, we said 7 right, 9 wrong, and guess what? We're at 16. So we need 16 total questions in order to be able to get a zero. Is this the only solution? 
Well, it is because they said less than 30 questions. This, this now pattern will repeat. So 16 questions, we can get a score of zero. If there were 32 questions, we could also get a score of zero. It means we just doubled the number we got right and doubled the number we got wrong. So on and so forth. If there were 32, then if there were 48, okay? If there were 64, all of these are viable answers, but for that restriction of less than 30. So that's how you how you can solve that. Now you can also set this up as an equation, right? We could say, oh, we just need nine times, let's say X is the number of questions you get correct, Y is the number that you get incorrect. We just say, oh, we need nine times X minus seven times Y equals zero. It's our baseline equation, all right? And then you can use this equation to sort of set, you know, you move it around, you isolate the variables, you'll end up getting x over y equals 7 over 9. So you know there's got to be this 7 to 9 ratio. So you can start figuring out, hey, we need 7 right, 9 wrong, or we need 14 right, 18 wrong. And then you can look to see where you're going to hit that sweet spot, where you're going to get total of questions less than 30. Now, I hope this, this this shows you some things. It's really all about just thinking these through. You know, you're going to write this stuff down. You're going to maybe in some cases put down an equation, look at it for a second, stare at it, come back to it, try and reframe it another way. Make sure that everything you're putting down on paper is a good capture of what the question is really describing. And I'm telling you, with practice, you will be surprised, you will be amazed at how good you can get at this stuff, how fluent you can become with solving all types of questions that people consider difficult. So that's it. That's all for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope it was useful. If it wasn't, again, please please email me at huzefa at scalarlearning.com. And again, check out the show notes. Hopefully you paused and you did that. But if you didn't, go to www.scalarlearning.com. You can find all the show notes in the podcast section. Please join me every day. Again, I said at the beginning, I'll say it again. Please subscribe if you haven't done so yet. We got lots of content coming at you this summer. And thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. I'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. Learning, give me that skin and learning.